Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 63. We're here to continue our reread, and we have finished Lost Children, and we are starting the Binding Chain chapter. Before we get started, though, I wanted to say, if you are listening to this, uh, some of us are recording here, me and Griffin Aziel are here, uh, I'm going to insert right around here a section where I interviewed Krug, uh, who is posting on our Creation Station section about his void sculpt slash bust slash cosplay. It's a really impressive looking bust, and you'll hear all about it and what his input is, what his creative ideas for that are. So, around now. Well, thanks for joining me in this rather impromptu call. Uh, it's really just happened, you know, the reason I wanted to do it is because I think what you do is really cool and. I don't know. I just thought it'd be cool to mention you on the show and ask you a couple of questions about the work. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. So we'll just go ahead and get started. Um, for those that uh, are not aware, Krug has been working on a sculpt of Void's bust, or a bust of Void, and uh, is really, really fucking impressive. Just the detail, the, the realism involved in this, and he's given pretty regular updates on the progress of it. So if you haven't checked it out, check it out for sure. So... I was just curious, uh, the thread keeps mentioning Void Griffith cosplay, but it, it looks like a sculpt to me, so is this going to transition into like something you wear on your head, or is this like just a straight-up bust that you like have for decoration? Yeah, so uh, what you're seeing, if you look at the pictures, uh, is you have kind of like a white area underneath the shoulders. Mm. That's, that's a, a life cast of me. Uh, the reason why I didn't go with like a generic life cast is my head's kind of oddly shaped and like my jaws sunk back a little bit my nose is big and uh so i just decided to do a life cast uh and i'm gonna turn it into hopefully a silicone mask and paint it up and do like the shoulder armor and the collar and the big cape or i don't even know what i guess it's a cloak ah sure it could be anything Uh, you want it to be yeah uh and uh i'll be wearing like two and a half three foot stilts and (laughs) Hopefully it'll be a pretty pretty impressive cosplay. That is uh, really awesome, man. Uh, as someone who's carried a Void avatar for a decade or so, I gotta say props for that. That's a really, I've never heard of a Void cosplay, or at least not one that involved that involves stilt. That's really clever. Yeah, I'd seen a few of them, and I don't know. My wife and I are kind of uh, attracted to the obscure, and I've never really seen. Uh, I don't want to disrespect people that have done Void cosplays. Uh, <laughs> Dude, so who cares? <laughs> I've never seen anyone that's gone all out on a Void cosplay. Like, you see just, just amazing Samus Aran cosplays, and mm-hmm. uh, you see the Halo cosplays all the time, and you know, there's like a hundred super impressive Iron Man cosplays out there. But, uh, I don't know, I just... I got into this uh, manga, and uh, I just I wanted to do it justice, and my wife actually got me into cosplay by... <laughs> uh, trying to get me to do something from berserk mm. and i guess i'll segue from that like she kept saying like uh i don't know who you want to cosplay pretty much everybody in this uh manga kind of rapes everybody so <laughs> well it's <laughs> <was> like <laughs> uh, well, i want to do pick somebody that doesn't rape anybody <laughs> sure she just points a lot and looks gloomy uh um so why is yeah i was gonna say why void in particular i actually that. picked uh Rakshas first, because mm. uh, I seemed to like it would be 
easy kind of pretty straightforward but it didn't really mesh like i wanted to do like a cosplay pair with my wife mm. uh she's always kind of I, I put a lot of effort into her cosplays helping her and uh she's won a couple of awards uh, and cosplay competitions hmm. and i wanted to do a group cosplay with her and that like Rakshas wasn't really working with anything that we would do. Like it would just be out of place because she wanted to do either Femto or Griffith. So I was sure. like, why don't I just do Void and we can do like the Eclipse scene since we can't get like a big group together. So is she going to be the Griffith then? Yeah, she's going to be Griffith. Uh, like basically when he's uh, after he's rescued mm-hmm. like during the Eclipse scene. Mm-hmm. So right during the Eclipse, I see. I was going to say, Rakshas, you could do a Zod-Rakshas combo and have, you know, Rakshas kind of tucked under Zod's wing is a random, unrealistic, ridiculous cosplay. That's the only pairing I can think of with Rakshas. Rakshas and like a like a dead guard next to him. That's about it. That's, it doesn't really pair up very well. You're right about that. Yeah. So, um, how long have you been sculpting? Um, you know, I messed around with it a little bit when I was a kid, but in... I just, I mean, it was like high school art stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, nothing big. I sculpted like a skull and a few other little things, and it wasn't a big deal. And for like probably the better part of a decade and a half, I didn't really touch much to do with art except for like sketches here and there. And I'm, I'm decent with, you know, pencil and paper. Okay. I'm ex army, and I would take uh, sketchbooks and stuff on deployments, and that would be kind of one of the things I did. Like, I'd mm-hmm. see a lizard or a scorpion, I'd sketch it. But uh, I don't know. My wife was into cosplay when I met her, and uh, she did really simple stuff. And I was like, "Well, why don't we just go all out and you know, try to do some cool stuff?" Uh, I mean, I kind of always have this "how hard can it be" mentality and kind of dive in head first in the stuff that I do. And uh, I mean, admittedly, my my first stuff looked like crap. Uh, but I mean, I just read and watched probably over a couple of hundred hours of tutorials and just improved up to the where I'm at, where I am now. I'm still learning. I'm learning a lot with uh, this sculpt now and uh, hopefully this will turn out good. I mean, we've like, like I mentioned, we weren't won a couple of awards, so I feel like I've, we've come a long way Cool. with it. And uh, I don't know. It's something that uh, I really enjoy doing in my spare time. So the the product that we're seeing at the end of this thread, or the most recent shots of it, what's the last? Well, not not what's the last. What's next, and how far are you on the timeline of having this like ready for show? Um, honestly, we're actually pretty early in it. Oh, really? <laughs> once I finish this sculpt, uh, I gotta cast it and make sure that I got a solid uh, mask out of it. And uh, after that, I'm gonna start doing a. Uh, like the shoulder armor. Hmm. Uh, and I'm really not sure where I'm going to go with it. There's about three or four different directions I can go. I could uh, recycle the monster clay, which is a totally reusable product. Uh, they should pay me for that quip. Um, <laughs> uh, like once I, I get that all out of the, the silicone, I can melt it down and just reuse it and sculpt it from there and do it in silicone. Or probably fiberglass resin would be lighter. Uh, I could sculpt it out of foam. I've done a little bit with foam. Uh, not EVA foam, but like expanding foam. Like carve it and uh, paint some resin over the top of it. Sand it down, make it smooth and all that stuff. Paint it. 
or I could uh, do like a, kind of a paper one. I don't know where I'm going to go with it yet. Sure, I'm sure. Twirling some things around in my head. Do you have any ideas for the Griffith part of it, or is that something that you're that she's gonna, she's going to handle? Yeah, uh, the helmet of that is going to be mostly Pepcura. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, um, the helmet that you see Griffith wearing after he's rescued is really crude, and I think that's it's kind of a mockery of his former helmet. Yeah. Uh, so that makes it easy. Uh, I I printed out a, a paper globe template, and I can basically sketch on where the hawk markings are in the eyes, and go from there add on as I need to with the fiberglass bondo, that kind of thing. And she has all the stuff for um, the bandages and she's got the pants laid out already. Awesome. Have you seen the other busts that have been in the merchandise section? There's one for uh, Skull Knight and there's one for the Berserk Armor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are pretty cool too. I just didn't know if the materials were similar. I didn't even know what the guys had based it on them. I think Pepakura sounds really familiar to me, and maybe it's what it is. Okay, so Pepakura is—it uh, looked like they were doing that out of clay. Hmm. Uh, Pepakura is basically paper, uh, folded paper. Uh, I don't know what—it's hmm. derived from Japanese. Probably sounds like it. But if you, you could just Google Pepakura, and all kinds of stuff crops up. Hmm. Iron Man and Ultron's are big right now. Uh, Captain America shields, that kind of stuff. Um, but basically. A lot of people get into 3D art and they can like unfold these 3D designs that they have and uh, I don't know, they add like little tabs in where you can glue it back together into the shape uh, that they designed in whatever 3D program they used. Hmm. It's pretty cool stuff. I'm not into 3D design at all. I wish I was. It's just I didn't grow up with uh, that kind of tech, so I'm just not familiar with it. Sure. I can see how it'd be kind of a barrier, a technical barrier, but it's becoming easier and easier to use those that kind of software, less uh, intrusive to to use that kind of stuff. But it's kind of cool like that it. you have a very hands-on approach to it, though. That you probably have more knowledge of the materials and you know what it's gonna what's gonna happen when you get hands on the materials than someone that has strictly a technical perspective on it. You know. Yeah, I've heard people say that it people that get or have a uh... Uh, I guess a more practical effects approach have an edge in 3D design mm-hmm. but mm. until I go 3D design them I guess I'm not going to get that edge And certainly they can do a lot of stuff that I can't do oh sure yeah well just put them together and it's Captain Planet and it's, everything's perfect right yeah well that's all I had planned for the, the Q&A section but um how long have you been into Berserk, and what what kind of got you into the series, if you can remember? Uh, my wife loves the series, uh, so she completely got it, got me into it. Um, I read the manga before I watched the anime. Good, um, good man. It's, I just think the story is easy, better told that way, personally. Yeah, I've said that a few times. I'm always I've always been a book guy, and I've always been the guy to like bitch about. Uh, oh they left this out you know the Tolkien movies really pissed me off actually oh yeah uh, sure but you don't want to go into a yeah I, I'm not going to say you don't want to go into a movie with me but uh, 
uh, I'm mature enough to hold that stuff back now and not ruin your experience. But if you ask me what I think, like just be prepared. You know? No, I'm the, I'm the same way when it comes to adapt. I think most adaptations are pretty pointless. Uh, and a lot of times they just miss the, the atmosphere or the original intent. Sometimes the movies get it right or enhance it. Like the, the one that always comes to mind for me is like Jurassic Park. Of course, I read the book when I was in middle school. And saw the movie when I was in middle school as well. And to, to my memory, <laughs> the movie is far more impactful than the book. But um, I'm, I'm not super familiar with Crichton's works. But most of the time, the original material is usually superior because it comes straight from the author's heart and it's not a mishmash of adaptation nonsense. So, I think the best adaptation I can think of off the top of my head is Fight Club. Like that movie complements and almost explains so much of that book that can uh, be cryptic at times. And I think Polanyik, if you're familiar with his work at all, is intentionally cryptic in his works. Like there's secret endings just kind of mixed into the uh, the writing, the literature. I've only read Choke from him, and I've not read Fight Club, but of course I've seen Fight Club. It's kind of like if you're part of our generation, you kind of have to have seen Fight Club, I think. Right. Uh, yeah. I think Survivor's worth a read if you're if you like his stuff at all. I I didn't really get into Choke. Maybe it was Survivor I read. I can't Survivor, remember now. Was it the one uh, with like the 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 uh, suicide cultist that didn't kill himself? Uh, it was the one about the Antichrist. <laughs> that must okay. have been. It must have been Choke. It must have been. Yeah, Choke was basically about the Antichrist. Maybe I didn't read Choke. I yeah. think it was the one. Uh, uh, with like the ex-porn star. I can't even remember right now. It was like 2003 or four. No, it was Choke. Yeah, yeah, it was Choke. Because the okay. guy was like going around like uh, uh, scamming people. Like he'd go into restaurants and yep. like he'd choke on food. Yeah. Yep, was he supposed to be the Antichrist? That's, I totally, that's, I totally yeah, missed that in the book. That's sort of how it gets, how it the, it plays out. By the end of the book, he starts, uh, he gets like, he buys into some religion, right? And the religion starts using him as a figurehead. And then it, it leads to the end of the world, and, and he's basically touted as the Antichrist by the end of the book. <laughs> That's my memory of it, anyway. Huh. Yeah, I, I guess I must not remember that. But, <clears throat> um, trying to think. I guess that's about it. Hey, what'd you think of Mad Max? Uh, it was pretty non-stop action. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and it, I don't think anybody was not impressed that was in that theater. Like, people were mumbling behind me like, wow, I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. Hmm. I was nonstop, that kind of stuff. I guess I'll have to go to a theater because holy shit, I never go to theaters anymore because it's been a long time since there was like a you have to see us in theaters kind of thing. But everyone I know is basically either has seen it or is going to see it this weekend. And I'm like, shit, I feel left out now. So Yeah, it's pretty visually impressive. I'll say that. Hmm. I didn't go see it in 3D, but I did see it on like a big IMAX screen. That's the way to do it. That's cool. Yeah. All right, man. Well, thanks for joining me, and uh, looking forward to seeing how your project goes. I'll cert- certainly check that thread every time it lights up, and everybody else to check out that thread if they have not. So, looking forward to that. All right, thanks, man. Yeah. All right. Appreciate the uh, uh, shout out. Of course, man. Thanks a lot for joining me. In other Berserk news, uh, just this last night, uh, news was posted that Dark Horse will be adapting Gigantomachia in English, which is fantastic, and it kind of comes out of the blue, because we had heard nothing for a while, but it's nice. Um, 
they're calling it Gigantomaxia, which I guess is just, it's really just, it's the Greek lettering, spelling of the title, and I guess the romanization for that would still be pronounced Gigantomachia, so I wonder how they'll actually translate the title. It's a small detail, it's just a matter of like, you know, have we been saying it right all along? It's, it just kind of rushed to my head. But I think, yeah, we're, well, I think we're pronouncing it right. It's a matter of the spelling. pronunciation is gigantomachia. It's just, you know, like Mira wrote it in Greek, uh, like in capital Greek letters on the, you know, the cover is like, uh, you know, which I, like I said in my post, it's pretty fitting. But yeah, you know, like uh, as far as transcribing it as, uh, you know, like they did is a bit, you know, like that's a bit weird. Like either you stick to the pure Greek thing, you know, like you go uh, maybe a stylicized way or something, and that's you stick to it, or you you know translate it. You know, you, they, they, it could even be translated as a gigantomachie, I guess, mm. which is how we also call it in French, and that's like the official translation for the mythological uh, thing in English. So it could be that, or it could be I don't know, gigantomachia with you know ch or kh, a, you know. But uh, yeah, the way they chose is a bit it's a bit strange. Sure. And again, it really matters only for us. Just want to know how to well, spell it, that's all. Well, the, the thing is like, as you know so well, even with a character like Farnese, you know, like people don't necessarily pronounce it properly because it's uh, Italian. So sure. if they start writing it like they do, people are going to say it's uh, Gigantomaxia, which is not actually the proper way to pronunciate it. So it's a bit, you know, that would be my only, you know, uh, qualm with it, is that it's, uh, it will induce people in error. Yeah. Yeah, if they had the accents on Farnese's name, it would be way more obvious. But since they don't, trans- they don't carry over any of those accents, it just well, looks like Farnese. The way it's spelled, yeah, the thing you know. is, uh, in Italian, there's no accents. You know, it's actually, you know, written properly. It's just, you know, mm. like in certain languages, you know, like you, you know, for that name, you know, that's how it's pronounced because that's how they pronounce it. You know, sure. they, they, it's, you know, not uh, visual, but uh, yeah. Well, we'll move on. Um, it's great to hear that they're translating that. I guess the next big announcement from Dark Horse would be, hey, are they ever going to do digital volumes? Uh, that's all that's left for them, because, uh, you know, there's no other Mira works. And, you know, eventually adapting Volume 38 whenever that comes out. I'm guessing 2018, 2017 well, or so. there's also the Deluxe Edition. Yeah, uh, don't forget that. The Deluxe Edition that doesn't exist? Wow, well, that will exist one oh, day. Oh, 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 okay, right, it, sure. It Hi- will. Hypothetical releases we're talking about. <laughs> that's right. more of the, the pipe dream than the, the request, like digital. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Is that common? I'm not plugged into the the market that much. Where I, you know, is that something that a lot of the companies are doing? Many, many do have. Actually, I got in a conversation on Reddit just this morning about this because I was kind of thrown off balance. So <clears throat> this guy keeps kept referring to them as Kindle editions, and I was like, "What do you mean by that?" He's like, "Oh, he just means oh. he just means like Amazon specifically offers these digital versions." Really, what he means is it's it's a digital manga. And you generally read them on tablets. You can read them on iPad or the Kindle Fire or whatever tablet you happen to have. I don't know if it actually is working with e-ink versions. Like, for example, I have a Kindle Paperwhite, which is strictly e-ink. I don't know if it would work with those devices or not. But I think that, that depends on the format, but I've seen uh, manga in ebook format yeah, before. There are quite so. a bit. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I realize there's a ton of comic books that do that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, sure. okay, yeah, that makes sense. 
I don't know that Dark Horse has dipped its toe in that, though. I mean, I can't say authoritatively because I don't really follow Dark Horse's stuff independent of Berserk. But I've just kind of, you know, skimmed their website for similar versions, and I, I don't think they've branched out to that yet. But yeah, I was sure that they'll they'll come to it. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure the the entire industry, you know, will move on to oh yeah digital, if, you know, just a matter of time. And unless they just want to, I think I think some companies would probably just go under during that transition. I'm not sure everybody would would make the yeah. leap, you know. Yeah, well, I, I think the comic book market in the U.S. has already under a lot of stress, has been under a lot of stress. So, yeah, it will uh, consolidate probably the, around the biggest actors, the ones that are left. Marvel does something really cool. I wish I could know the, I wish I knew the name of it offhand, but I don't. Where you basically pay, I think it's either monthly or annually, you pay some fee. I think it's like 60 bucks a year. Yeah. And you and, get and access that, to their entire library. Yeah, and I think they've also opened uh, like their entire back catalog like the, oh, the yeah. every stuff you know like yeah like from the i don't know i'd say up to the 80s it's free you know like the stuff from the 50s 60s 70s oh wow know. i didn't know that Holy crap maybe that, maybe that was just a promotional offer or maybe mm. it's permanent i don't remember I, I know they have a partnership with something called uh, comicology or comicology some app like that and uh yeah, this thing works very well. They're making a, so, a lot of money with that. Not not just making billions of dollars at the box office. It's yeah. also <laughs> yeah. really cool all around. Well, the yeah. comics, I mean, you have, to, you have to think of Marvel from a business perspective. Like, the comics are probably, at this point, just like, a, oh, yeah, that's just a side thing for us now, you know? Well, Where it's the, also, it's almost how do you make any money off that nowadays compared to what they're tapped into? Yeah, kind of like you say, it's a side business, but at the same time, they've got all these this back catalog that if they could monetize that rather than having people overpaying on the used market where they don't see any of that. I was going to say those back issues are the only thing that I'm, I'm actually vaguely interested in still. Like, I don't give yeah. a crap about newer stuff, but if I could pay, you know, some amount to get like, you know, every X-Men or every Spider-Man comic ever, like, yeah, sure, I'd pay that. <laughs> But not recurring. That's the catch. I'm not going to keep that on tap for months and months and months. I want the ability to have it all. I want them to, to, to stop all. at, you know, 1999, yeah. basically. <laughs> sure. <clears throat> anyway, quite a tangent, but an interesting one, nonetheless. We will move on to our reread. Uh, we finished Volume 16 right around the, I don't know, two-thirds mark, right as Lost Children ends. And uh, the chapter of Binding Chain begins with Skull Knight. Um, I generally like to kind of give an overview of what's to come in this chapter is whenever we start a new chapter. And I was thinking about this chapter as, as characterized by Guts being off balance uh, because he's still reeling from his injuries and the, the series of injuries that he sustained during the Lost Children chapter. He hasn't had a chance to recuperate yet, and so he's just struggling to stay on his feet throughout this entire volume. Uh, but he has to deal with a series of ordeals, you know, namely, you know, having just finished his Roshin battle and then he has to come across the Holy Iron Chain Knights. And then, you know, it's a, it makes the fight interesting because not only is he not fighting at his maximum potential, he's, you know, barely staying awake, but not only that, but his opponents are not suited to be fighting someone like Guts at all. And so it, the whole fight's just kind of a mess as a result of that. But And I was reading through this volume, I was thinking about it's not the only time that Miura puts Guts through the ringer like this. You know, the first, the one that came to mind for me was, you know, the string of events that from, you know, the troll invasion of Enoch to Cliffoth to battling apostles, that all happens in one quick sequence, you know? Yeah. So he's not afraid to make Guts just 
push him to his physical limits. Uh, he's like, yeah, I think he's actually done it uh, quite a bit in recent years, like, you know, uh, with the armor. Like he, we've often seen him get, you know, really on the edge, you know, of. Uh, you know, the first time was probably like you said with. Uh, after he was wounded by Slan and had to fight, you know, Grumble. And then, you know, uh, there was uh, the armor's case. You know, several times he was pretty badly wounded up to the Sea God, you know. Right. Yeah, right. he basically has to go into a coma afterwards to yeah. recuperate these days. It's Yeah, it's gotten more extreme. And so I was thinking like, narratively why he does that. And I mean, it does for, for a number of reasons it makes sense because, for one, it keeps the fights interesting. It raises the stakes and still allows Guts to retain, you know, his supernatural strength whenever he needs to, basically. If he's coming to a fight fresh, you can expect him to just mow through things, but he still has struggle, has to struggle to fight most a lot of battles because of, you know, the physical injuries. But I think it's also just Mira's way of keeping fights realistic. And, you know, the actions have consequences. A theme throughout the whole series is that he can't just breeze his way through fights because he's still struggling one after the other. Yeah, and also the... I mean, the, I think the stakes have been raised pretty... Regularly, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. the kind of things that would, you know, put guts in a bad state, you know, back in the day, it's nothing to him now, but he has to fight even bigger things, you know, and it's like slowly ramping it up to, uh, you know, the fighting the gold hand or some kind of big battle like that. Right. So where it's like literally just breaking his body apart. I mean, it's not even a matter of winning or losing. It's just, you know, the toll that it takes to participate is what's destroying him. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll the go question, ahead. And, go ahead. Sorry. I was just gonna say the, the question that like, we could be asking ourselves is uh, if it can go on much longer. Like if you know that kind of thing can go on indefinitely, or if there's, there'll be a limit for guts, or you know from a, maybe a storytelling perspective to you know the amount of uh, damage he can take, you know, in battles like that. I feel like Griff touched on this earlier with basically every fight Guts has now, he kind of ends up in a coma. Like, yeah, you know, it's, since he's acquired the armor, he's pretty much when he's not fighting, he's on bed rest, you know? Yep. And, I, so, and throughout the throughout that entire sequence from the armor to now, he's had more than a few scenes of him losing his senses. And, you know, that's not going away. And, you know, yeah. his, his condition at the end of the Sea God battle, he was in a bad shape. Uh, yeah. So, I I think Azil, you'd mentioned long ago, years ago, that you could you could you could foresee, and this is like five years ago, you could foresee them arriving on Elfhelm and him guts being like you know almost at death's door, you know, basically. But yeah. Well, and also I think like the only sort of long term cure for this that I mean is it you know like really cheesy like you know oh well we're gonna bestow guts with the. The anti-god hand powers, you know, or something, you know, get the power up and win the game. Yeah, yeah. Is, you know, is basically if he had a more reliable team on his level. And, I mean, that's something, you know, I think would be palatable. Hmm. Where yeah. they could, you know, where his his companions could, you know, be sort of similarly upgraded and he wouldn't have to take on so much of the burden. Yeah, that's a good point. And it, it yeah. certainly seems like it's heading in that direction. I mean... Azan certainly hasn't even had anything yet. He's still and I just... mean, yeah, and we've we've seen, you know, we've seen that at times, you know, when they were fighting. Uh, oh gosh, when they well, basically when they confronted Ganeshka, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. just the that whole sequence, you know, he got some help. But yeah, if we saw, I mean, I think more of that is really sort of the only answer. Yeah, it's been again they've progressed, you know, rather slowly, yeah. but 
they managed to give some support and yeah I think more support is due for him to be able to and maybe you know I don't know a different rapport with the armor you know not so much you know uh, as it is right now where he's going to give in and you know take a huge toll yeah where it's you know it's even just wearing you know even wearing the armor is like another facet of like that's like something else he's fighting while he's fighting it's like another yeah. enemy so that could be taken away and he could work more in tandem with it probably through Shirke's help that would uh, probably go a long way yeah I wonder how they'll cross that bridge because the armor's the price of the armor is its power you know yeah, how that works. That's it's the way it works. Yeah, can't really take the the price away. <clears throat> we'll go ahead and get started. Um, Binding chain starts with Skull Knight visiting the remains of the lost, or the, so the Misty Valley, and it's all scorched. Uh, still has you know corpses littered about. What's interesting here is that <clears throat> it's really the only scene I can think of that kind of gives us insight into his travels just alone. Usually when we see Skull Knight, he's appearing to talk to Guts or he's appearing to take action somewhere. Here he's, we're literally seeing him just kind of just, I mean, it's not an average day or anything, but we're seeing him, you know, we can kind of envision what his travels must be like. He's, yeah, uh, observing, coming after the battle to pick right. up a parrot. Yeah, he's musing about Guts and Guts' path being a dark one. That cursed. Uh, mo- most striking about this scene, though, is that he comes straight away to the Behirat, you know, almost as if he knew exactly where to look. He doesn't hesitate or pause, or if, if he does, it's edited so that it looks like he's going directly there. Walks straight to the tree. You can see him, he dismounts from his horse, walks straight to this, you know, kind of uh, nook within the tree, he reaches in, grabs the Behirat. You know, there's no. I wonder where it could be, or oh, I was—I'm surprised to find this here. Nothing like that at all, you know. Just reaches in, grabs it. So, what do you guys think? Do you think he knew the be here? It was here. Do you think? Yeah. It was? Okay. I—I I think he could feel it. You know, I mean, it's hard to explain how, or why, but you know, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty clear he knows. Much like you know, guys can feel where apostles are, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I see. I think he knew, like. He has some kind of beacon that allows him to, you know, <coughs> inner things that allows him to find where they are. Well, I mean, we know he probably already has some version of, you know, the sword, and he has the Behirits inside him at this point. Mm-hmm. So maybe they, re- you know, and we know they resonate mm-hmm. in a, you know, even on the sword later. So perhaps he could sort of literally feel it in his gut, you know, yeah. like when he's close, you know. So that would be, uh, that would be interesting, unless he's also, unless it's like, you know. What is it on the mentalist? He you know just notices this thing. He just sees this big tree and says, "That's where she'd put it." And you know, reaches in, and there it is. You know, but I, I like the first explanation better. Yeah, I, I think it has something to do with him having Behirits in his body already, like kind of serving as a compass. Because we've seen Behirits react to certain phenomenon. We've seen them like when when Slan, you know, came from yeah. the, the cliff off. It was rattling, and it also rattled. Yeah, yeah, yep, and all that stuff. So. You can sort of see the Behirits might have a tertiary property that allows them to detect other Behirits. Or he could just know because he knows a lot of weird shit, you know? Yeah, I mean, if you start wondering about how he knows stuff, you know, like, never yeah. ends. Yeah. So anyway, he takes the Behirit into his mouth and has this long ellipsis as he just stares enigmatically towards the readers and then trots off. And I remember... Seeing this was a huge mystery, a huge enigmatic moment for Skull Knight because, you know, we know so little about, you know, 
him and what he's capable of and what he is. That at the time, before we knew any answers, like, you know, when he finally used the sword, it became clear, it crystallized yeah. why he was collecting beer. But before then, there were a number of theories about why he was doing this. And, the, the, I mean, the and one... this also cast a little, you know, shadow of doubt on his... Uh... Sure. on his intentions too because it's like we we just know that the behirits are evil and powerful mm-hmm. and so for him to you know be collecting one and then eating it and taking it into himself definitely makes you wonder you know and then uh, the ellipsi mm-hmm. below it makes you think you know what is he doing it just looks very foreboding the way it's portrayed yeah. here you know and, and it doesn't obviously there are a number of ways you could read that but i read that as foreboding yeah just his eyes and then the way you see him riding off across the scorched earth and it's worth mentioning that Mura plans this like 10 volumes in advance you know from the time we see him take the beheri to the time we see the sword so it's pretty you know pretty far ahead sure we're gonna get that interview one day where he's like oh I'm just winging it yeah I decided Mm -hmm. that at the last minute (laughs) of the sword um also worth mentioning is that when he drops it in his mouth, it makes a sound effect that I feel like we I must reference online at least once a month or so to point out to people that he's a hollow armor. At least we can infer that based on the sound effect that it makes. It's a Quran is the Japanese sound effect. And Dark Horse translate that as Klada, which I don't think is totally relevant. I think the, 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 the emphasis here is that it's an object striking metal, implying that he's swallowing it and it's hitting the bottom of him. Or the inside of its armor, at the very least. So moving on, um, I really like. I've always liked this scene visually, just how stark and the silhouette of guts against these trees. It's very oppressive-looking, kind of autumn trees. Uh, yeah, visually very cool. And you can see the, the drench, still drenched in blood, still bleeding actively from his wounds. It's kind of just barely making it out alive. Yeah. The leaves on the floor, you know, it's a very specific kind of atmosphere. We actually, uh, I don't think we see, you know, that kind of stuff very often in the series. It's a pretty unique moment. Yeah, I agree. The, the dead leaves falling, you know, the, of course, the specters under them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the trees, it's actually kind of surreal. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. The whole thing, particularly just the misshapen forms of them and the various shapes the, uh, the beast takes here. It is a very surreal scene, and it kind of crosses between reality and surreality in terms yeah. of what he's perceiving and what might physically be happening around him. You know, you kind of wonder how much is in his head and how much is act- actively happening. Um, <clears throat> something interesting about here, I, I think it's kind of visually cool how, you know, we know these guys live in the shadows, and Mira does that in a few clever ways, like they're they're you know, clinging to the branches, hiding behind the tree limbs. We see them hiding under leaves, kind of floating. You know, kind of almost cutely under the leaves, trying to get within the shadows. Yeah, possessing a frog. <laughs> is, yeah, is... is that what was happening? I couldn't quite tell if that was what was yeah. happening. Well, makes... you know, like that's uh, that's how they do stuff. But it's pretty funny that they're so yeah. desperate that, you know, uh, possess a frog, you know, that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I, this whole scene is very cool. It's the introduction of the Beast of Darkness. But I, I've, you know, I've looked through the scene many, many times, but I've never really actually... I get why it's done narratively, but I've never actually thought about how it's being accomplished, like how the Spectres are able to gain insight into guts like this. Well, and... you know, they're like, you know, I wouldn't say like elves, but they can feel, they have somewhat telepathic, you know, abilities. 
You know, I, I'm not sure I would say telepathic is a proper word, but yeah, they can feel emotions, that kind of stuff. You know, it actually, we see some of that later on with Fanese, mm-hmm. although she's eventually possessed by it. But, you know, this is a this little specter that gets on top of her could, you know, uh, tell us things just based on that. It's uh, There's a precedent for it in, in the series. And I wonder if them having possessed him, you know, on a couple of occasions before... I mean, it's not necessarily the same specters, but I yeah. wonder if it becomes almost like communal sort of knowledge, you know, for all of them, you know? Yeah, that's, that's what I was wondering as well, is if, if it is a collective kind of thing where if one specter knows it, the rest of them know it. Uh, I, I Honestly, I wouldn't think they have a kind of collective thing going on. I think they're all, you know, pretty individual, but, mm-hmm. you know, by virtue of them being, you know, like not very powerful or anything like that, they tend to, you know, cling together. But uh, I, I think in his case, Guts, you know, after what he's just endured, his emotions must be pretty strong, you know, towards mm-hmm. the dark. And uh, that's what allows them to draw on, on it so, you know, so strongly. <clears throat> I see. It's also interesting what you said about, you know, comparing them to elves, except obviously, the, you know, in this case, this ability would be used against, you know, <laughs> yeah. targets rather than uh, something yeah, yeah. that's good and intuitive to help people. Sure. Well, I think there's a you know a lot to be said about that in the series. Like for example, we see a few uh, incubi in that in that you know scene, and those are you know like uh, they feed on nightmares, you know, which is also something like elves will you know uh, feel people's emotion and try to cheer them up that kind of stuff. Whereas here you have you know uh, creatures that feed on nightmares or try to uh, I don't know influence people in bad ways. So yeah, I think the parallel is pretty relevant. I mean, yeah, I, I never really thought about it before, but I've, I've always thought of Incubi as purely astral beings that happen to, you know, kind of congregate around Guts because he's just easy fodder. It's just like a like something that attaches itself to a shark or a whale, you know, like a weird symbiotic thing. Yeah, we, we actually... Paras- Mira parasite, does, parasite. Mira doesn't show us uh, a lot of them, you know, like early in the series compared to what we get to see in the uh, Clifforth, you know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, they are, you know, pretty, like, they're just some kind of pests. Whereas specters are former humans who cling to life and, you know, are evil and stuff like that. Exactly. But these guys are just, you know, astral creatures are just, you know, uh, you know, bad. Sure. <clears throat> What's interesting is uh, if you look in the top uh, left corner on the page where we first see the Beast of Darkness kind of form, you can actually see one of the specters in the form of an incubus, or at least very close to it. Yeah, in the top left corner. Yeah, yeah, I think it's actually it's it's one of them actually. I think yeah, I, I think so as well. You, you see it later on as well. It's a swallow. Yeah, there's another one too. Yeah, yeah there's a. We, we can see if you look at the you know, what says the third panel. You know, uh, there's you know you can see three of them at least. There's one at the back and two at the front. You know where the beast is spewing some from its mouth. You know mm-hmm. while the beast the beast like yeah. forms they've created. And there are more, you know, later on in the scene. So I think they're just along for the ride, you know. <laughs> same, same here. Yeah, I think they just they just know food when they see it. Basically, is what I mm. thought of it. Is. But I mean, I kind of raised the question about how they know this about guts, but they kind of give us a half answer on that page, that same page we were just discussing about how, you know, how gut stinks of darkness, a darkness that's very close to us. And so I mean. They're, I took it that as that they're able to read the part of Guts that is like them, or at least the darkness that, that is within Guts, if they are also have darkness in them. Similar to how they're able to read Farnese's mind to a certain extent, but only her dark desires. So they're able to basically, you know, they see, they see a reflection somewhat in humans 
that is close to them, and they're able to read that part of it and reflect it here. Well, yeah, especially for specters, you know, I mean, they are, you know, by nature, human. They're just, you know, dead. Mm -hmm. So it, it makes sense that they would be connected, you know, or at least understand how humans work to some extent. <clears throat> they're also they... quite malleable in that they take the shape of, you know, the beast. They do, a, you know, sort of a half beast, half guts, back to the beast, into a full guts, like monster guts, and then uh, even femto. <laughs> Before he finally sort of, uh, you know, puts an end to it. Yeah, it, you, get, you get the impression from, from from the changes between each panel that it's constantly shaping, reshaping its source. Yeah. You know, it's pretty cool. Yeah. The they, ones they're are very good at impressions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it serves, you know, beyond the fact it serves a story, it's also, you know, they're yeah. pretty much just taunting him, trying to, you know, how to say, uh, teasing him before, you know, feeding, mm -hmm. feeding time. But they also, I mean, they're taunting them for sure, but they're also revealing a pretty important truth about Guts, and that yeah. is that you know, this beast is a real you know, issue within him, you know. And it's yeah. the first time in the series it's directly addressed and even named. I mean, the, the name of the episode is The Beast of Darkness. Yeah, so it's actually we, the, the only time, I believe. Yeah, I think so too. But, you know, it's... It's something that is introduced here, but is further elaborated on by Godot and then in Flora as well. And they're kind of hitting on all three of these scenes touch on the same thing. And they, basically, it's the beast is the result of the trauma that guts endured to the eclipse, and also the result of when His he lifestyle. Yeah, the way he enveloped himself in darkness to pursue apostles. You know, basically embracing only a dark kind of lifestyle, and also yeah. that he had to, you know, draw on emotions and powers within him that were made him capable of killing apostles. You know, we're just, we're still reeling from that in lost children. The yeah. kind of persona that he had to adapt in order, you know, the fierce, you know, always at war persona, never weak, never, you know, never hesitating, which guts, you know, chides himself for hesitating throughout lost children. And there also the ways they say things is, uh, you know, like it's half prophetic when they say the beast will consume him, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, mm -hmm. taking its place. But it's also, you know, I think in a way voicing his fears, you know, uh, that he's afraid to lose himself in the darkness, you know, especially after the scene with Jill, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, it's half between desire because it would be so so much simpler to just, you know, uh, forget everything and just, you know, give in to the you know, the revenge, but at the same time, I think it's also a fear he has that he will lose himself. And so, yeah, they're, they're playing on it. And I think it's especially true with the part about Femto, you know, like becoming a real monster, like, you know, Griffiths did, that kind of stuff. <clears throat> it's also something Slan actually comments on later on. So I think yeah. it's, uh, it's, again, you know, reading his mind and playing on it and, and that actually works because he slashes, you know, the figure and then falls on the ground. So that's pretty yeah. much... I mean, it's basically, it's almost like it's, you know, their main point of attack. You know, they're not physically attacking him, but they're sort of psychologically weakening him. And then when he tries to retaliate, maybe they already know, you know, he's not in any condition. He just needs to sort of get away from them. And instead, he tries to strike back, falls down. And then when they descend on him, he's even questioning whether, you know, there's any point in him getting through it. So they've, you know, pretty well done their job. Yep, exactly. There are two moments here in this scene and kind of skipping ahead a little bit when after Puck arrives that the Behirid is shown in a kind of a panel, an ominous panel both mm -hmm. times. During the time when the, the specters are taunting him with his face, they say that you'll become a monster in the form of a man. 
and then it just kind of just falls on the behirit, you know, and kind of just focuses there for a moment, and then perhaps you become something more, a real monster like him, showing the outline of Griffith's, or Femto's face. Yeah. You know, you know, this is something a lot of people reference when they're talking about maybe Guts will be the one to use the, the behirit to become an apostle. I mean, it's pretty clear that's not where Mira's going to take things, because that would be the end of the whole series. But it begs the question, you know, is Guts capable of making that step? If they're referencing it here, Slan sort of implies it as well. You know, they're showing it later on as well. I mean... Yeah, even in Volume 3, you know... Mm-hmm. Yeah, when so, he first meets a Godin, they talk about that, you know, so... Sure, sure. I, I just remember us having conversations about how, because he's a sacrifice, maybe he's not capable of becoming an apostle. Maybe he's not ordained like they are because he's already been doomed to the vortex of souls. But... But then so are they, it seems, <laughs> you know, if they mm. die. So I don't know, well, maybe there's not a conflict there necessarily, or they belong to the God Hand anyway. Hmm. Well, the question of whether the brand precludes one from becoming an apostle is, you know, I think it's almost irrelevant, and I don't think we're going to get an answer to it, you know. Well, like... I mean, Slan seems to imply. That and yeah. also visually here it's happening as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the application, you know, you know, even besides the fact whether it's possible or not, the implication is that that's what they are referring to, and maybe it's even something he's given thought to before. You know, although I don't think so, but yeah, I think that's what they're implying. And uh, and I think just you know, even visually, it makes sense to make that connection with a uh, Behrit when they're talking about becoming a monster. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't say it's completely impossible, but uh, I'm well, not I mean, sure because... we're going to. Of course, we know the reason he carries the Behirat, you know, and we think of it as being different than everyone else's, you know, all the other people that have carried Behirats and ended up using them. But, you know, the reality is he still is a carrier of a Behirat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. Anyway, the scene ends with Guts, you know, passing out or because he's, uh, you know, took, just took one swing for him to, to knock him out. That's all on the edge that he was. And he laments that, you know, is this going to be the place that I die, reaching out to this giant form of Griffith or Femto? Yeah. I love I, this shot a lot. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. And it shows how desperate his struggle is. Yeah. And how yeah. also, you know, I mean, the revenge is, at this point, everything to him. It's the englobes everything in his life. And it's also futile. I mean, the way this, I love the way this visually portrays it. You know, Guts is this yeah. tiny figure. And Femto is this massive form just enveloping him in darkness. Well, yeah, it's weird. It's like it's almost you know, it's like he's going towards it like you know he's so small and he can't reach it, but it's also like his salvation. Yeah. Which is you know this weird contrast. Yeah, the way he's reaching out is is fascinating. It's mm. you're right. It's desperate. <clears throat> anyway, the um scene ends and Puck arrives on the scene looking for Guts using his little radar to hone in on where Guts is. Fully ready to give him a berating for having uh, done what he did with Jill. But, uh, you know, this scene that just transpired and the scene that's coming up, it's done in a comical way, but both of these scenes emphasize the importance of Puck to Guts' travels. And it's, you know, Guts wouldn't have gotten in the situation he was just in, you know, on the verge of death had Puck not been near him, you know. And, you know, here, Puck, you know, it's made comical, but he does rescue Guts from whatever fate the Spectres might have had for him. If he would have died well, or been possessed to, do, yeah. to die or whatever. I think events... death, death is pretty much, you know, yeah. uh, sure. However it might have happened. 
Yeah. And it's made comical. And by the end of the scene, of course, you know, Guts finally accepts Puck and invites him home permanently. But it's they've been in a kind of a crossroads throughout the past three volumes. And so this is nice to see them finally resolve these issues that they've had together. It's kind of like a, the makeup from their past breakups. Anyway, visually, I really love a lot of these things Puck is doing, the, the, the techniques he's using, like fencing sting, fishing sting, all the cute little ways he's doing it uh, to, to destroy the specters. And um, before that, of course... I like when Guts wakes up and just sees, you know, <laughs> yeah, Puck yeah. sort of, yeah, very yeah. Uh, flamboyantly <laughs> dispatching yeah. his enemies. <laughs> of course, there's also this that nice panel where it has, you know, if I'm if Guts is, uh, or if the Spectres are greater than Guts and Puck <laughs> can beat the Spectres, that means Puck is better than Guts. And, you know, and yeah, he, and you just right see, he looks it. delirious after yeah. <laughs> that realization. It's the eyebrows in that shot. He's just like, ha, 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 ha. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. And he ends up whacking Guts in the forehead and Guts, you know, can't says he can't take it seriously when he's around. And, uh, you know, again, again, this is portrayed very lightheartedly, but there's a truth to this that Puck really did save him and Puck's character and demeanor really do, do you know, bring Guts out of that darkness for yeah. in a number of ways. And I think it's, uh, it's very telling that, you know, that scene with the Beast of Darkness and the Spectres happens actually at a time where Puck isn't here. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, at that moment, you know, the looks like the sun comes out, or at least uh, the wind blew away some of the specters, or something happens, but they they pass on either way. Yeah. And guts just rejects that they what they were saying that he will not become a monster, and he'll make his own way to him, implying Griffith the Fento, of course. And then at that moment, when he sticks his sword in there, you know, we see an outline of the Behirid again, looking very ominous. Yeah. In his bag. Yeah. The way it's shaded is very ominous. Indeed. And Puck's curious about what Guts is. Guts is just ruminating to himself, but Puck, of course, doesn't know what Guts just went through, and he won't know for quite a while anything about the Beast. Still doesn't know much about the Beast. Yeah, he still doesn't really get it. Yeah. Well, it makes sense because it's uh, since it's a purely psychological thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Like something like that, you know, people who have, you know, I don't know, schizophrenia, you know, schizophrenia, they don't really get it. Sure, sure. Anyway, like I said earlier, uh, Puck's face here with a big frown is very cute. He's, uh, <laughs> he's basically demanding that Guts, you know, acknowledge that he just saved his life. Yeah, I love. And the he's acting about... also. He's looking like sort of a pig-headed, you know, hero now too. <laughs> yeah, he's being very stern-faced. Tough guy. Yeah, yeah like he's basically emulating Guts <laughs> now. <laughs> I, I like when uh, Guts looks down at him and, you know, you see he's, like, breathing in through his nose or something like that. Just, like, that really slight yeah. little thing. It's, it's pretty funny, you know, just that stern look. Yeah. Well, there's the text there is funny, too, that he, I suppose he has some medicinal value. You know, again, kind of j- harping on the whole insect, you know, motif <laughs> of, of Puck. Yeah. Anyway, um, the Holy Iron Chain Knights finally catch up with Guts and we see them on the the hill there it's actually you know it's notable because this they've been hunting him for this long and they've caught a glimpse of him once before at the end of lost children but this is the first time that they've come truly face to face you know where he got but guts path is actually cut off by them they've been chasing him for years but they're finally able to take a look at the man that they've been hunting down yeah and then, then all they had before was descriptions and rumors and things like that so 
they must have been building up in their heads what to expect. And so they see this guy with the giant sword and black cape. And but you know, Farnese is convinced that this is the the Falcon of Darkness. She says as the she first sees him. Very cool armor designs throughout this whole section. Just really that that first page after the uh, as the episode begins, the first full page on the bottom left hand corner. That super intricate armor design on a lot of these guys. And as the episode goes on, just take note of all the the shields, the insignias, the the crests of all the houses that are on display. Yeah. Some of the random guys have like better looking armor than even the main cast. Like uh, on the, just the second page, the guy in the bottom uh, left corner, Mm -hmm. his armor is incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That thing's very ornate. Not, not exactly suited for the battlefield. Maybe, you know, maybe more to be on display. Anyway, um, Farnese is demanding that Guts, you know, drop his weapons and come with them. And of course, that doesn't really work out. It's interesting that, um, you know, they have a certain perception of what Guts has been doing. And of course, his true mission can't even be conveyed to them with any, any, in, in any way. They wouldn't believe it or understand what he's doing. And so he, he just comes across as a, mur- a murderer, you know, child murderer, horrible creature. Yeah, he's covered in blood. He's got a huge sword. His arm is, you know, not you know normal. He's yeah. pretty much, you know, I think he lives up to their, you know, fantasy so far. Yeah. And you know, Farnese asks him directly, you know, if you're not covered, in, if you're covered in blood, is that the children's blood? You know, and he, he can't answer. And Puck realizes that this is getting bad, so yeah. she sicks them on on guts, and Puck acknowledges that he's in no shape. To, to do this but then again neither are they they're in no shape to take on someone like Guts and uh, you know they're filled with fear about how to approach this man they've been you know not scared of but maybe scared of but chasing for so long this enigmatic guy there's and, a uh, go ahead. there's a lot of cool shots of Guts here like the the one at the bottom when she's first uh, confronting him about the, the blood mm-hmm. and he just that's the point where he just sort of looks like a you know a dangerous murderer at the bottom yeah. but also as, right as they're charging him and he just looks so ravaged he, His, you know every part of him looks you know torn up and ripped up and also it's cute that in the center of that page you see Serpico standing behind everyone else just sort of observing like mm, let's see how this works out and then you know the strategist that he is there's actually several panels of Serpico doing that. I think there's like three or four before he does his little twig thing where you can see him just having an ellipse, just observing the situation, trying to, you know, probably yeah. sizing Guts up to seeing what would be the best way to take him down, I'm guessing. Yeah. And it's just Gus Mitch. It's his misfortune that there's two guys that know what they're doing among this group where, you know, if yeah. he was in fine shape, he'd be able to handle it. But yeah. Yeah. So Guts can't use his sword, you know, even blocking one of the, the first guy's strikes just sets him off balance and he has to you know, do a backflip to recover. And they, they realize he can't use the sword, so they just charge him. But, you know, he's quick enough still that he can take him out mostly with his cannon arm, which leads to some pretty creative ways to do hand-to-hand combat. We don't see Guts do hand-to-hand combat very often. I can only think of two other times. So it's nice to see this. Lots of variety in how he takes these guys out using the yeah. big heavy arm. Um, they're having they're having real trouble coordinating their assaults, which is also really funny to watch. These panels, the crossbow guys are shooting at their own men, you know, having to duck and dodge. And Guts is having no trouble evading all their attacks because these are all third, fourth rate fighters. 
probably have no no actual experience on the battlefield. But it's also it's just sad to see guts that he can't you know he can't yeah. show his true stuff either. He's got to slide into them and knock them down like bowling pins, you know, yeah. things like that. Where you know he doesn't he's not looking great either. I mean, it's probably impressive, you know, anyway that he's able to do this and evade so many people, but it's not his best stuff. Actually, I find it, you know, pretty interesting because it forces him to be very creative. You know, there yeah. are only a few times where he's actually at such a disadvantage that he has to be creative like that against human opponents, and uh, that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. And you know, to their he, credit, I, I don't he, think they're just being inexperienced. I think he's also still very fast. You know, even in his state. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's a nice. It's nice to think of this scene. And then if you flash forward just two volumes when he's taking on the, the Bakiraka <laughs> and it just yeah. makes short work of these super skilled assassins, you know, now that when he can use his sword and he's yeah. having to resort to all sorts of... This is of... more like how a real person would have to avoid, you know, just like a mob, you know, sure. coming at them like this. Yeah. And, you know, him not being able to use his sword, him not being able to fight in tip-top shape, despite the fact that there are rumors of his prowess here. It reminds me a lot of when uh, Grunvale detect Guts when... Guts couldn't fight in his tip-top shape either at the time. Yeah. You know, Gr- Grunbelt's mocking him for, you know, this is the Black Swordsman, you know? He always seems to run into, you know, like I said before, that, you know, his misfortune here is that there's a couple of capable guys. But actually, as we find out, Serpico and Zan aren't just capable fighters. They're actually rather exceptional. Yeah. So it's it's extremely bad luck that he's run into them. Yeah. And also, it's interesting that they, they attack him in different ways. You know, the... The Holy Iron Chain Knights, you know, do a very direct assault with no coordination, really. Uh, Azan, you know, once Guts actually, you know, uses his sword and shows that he can actually take out, you know, five guys at once in one swing, the stakes of the fight completely change, and Azan puts a stop to that by jumping down himself. And, you know, later Serpico uh, realizes that, you know, Azan's technique didn't work either against Guts, so he has a very much more kind of uh, tactical way of taking out Guts. Non-physical, almost. Anyway, um, the way he the, the sword strike is one of the one of the highlights of this scene. One of the highlights of this volume, probably. Right before he swings it, you know, as his arm is gushing from blood from the strength that he has to use to swing the sword, he grits his teeth. There's that overlay shot of the arm. It's just super intense. His yeah. bicep just bulging like that, and the blood shooting out like that. He's, he's pretty damn fucking cool. Yeah. <laughs> I also like that it's. The reason he did the sword to begin with is, you know, you can see he's a little frustrated. He got forced against a tree, forced against a wall, his back's at the two, at least, you know, a tree. And then the uh, Farnese sends some more guys in and he just says, fuck yeah. it, kind of basically. Like, and and they, shoot, they shoot his leg as well, so he can't move as fast, you know. Right, right, yeah, that just happened. And yeah, that shot, we see a couple shots like this in the next few volumes, particularly in volume 18 as well. Taking out just hordes of guys in you know armor and all the parts flying, and you can just detect the motion, the the circular motion with which the body parts are flying here. Definitely yeah, flying like, off in different directions from the yeah, swing. The uh the the, the two page spread, the very bottom panel. I like that one a lot because of the layers. There's the foreground with all the bodies, and the background with the people witnessing what's happening. Yeah. And being shocked, you know, yeah. like they they recoil in the next pa- next page, you know, from the from what just happened. Yeah, all three of the top ranking Holy Iron Chain Knights are dumbfounded by what they've just seen. And Guts is in no condition either. His gut, his arm is just you know ripped apart. 
Because previously this was almost, you know, it was like Azan was complaining. It was like a farce, you know. It was just them in a, being ineffective at capturing him and him evading them and running around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is more like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he comments on that later on that, you know, seeing him use that sword like invigorated him. So he steps up, you know, puts his helmet down and takes the jumps down to face guts. Yeah, I love his jump, you know. It's very dramatic. <laughs> yeah. And um, Zahn is intervening, everyone says. Uh, he calls himself uh, Iron Club Azan, and he challenges Guts to a battle. And uh, uh, Guts catches his name, Azan. It somehow sticks in his mind. And um, Guts remembers something from his childhood about the, a bridge knight named Azan. Uh, Azil, recently you pointed out that this is reminiscent to a French historical figure. Yeah, yeah, Bayard. The, the, you know, Chevalier Bayard, as we call him. Which is um he's like I don't know how to say the archetype of the of the romantic knight you know uh, which is what like the image of the the knight you know that's used in fantasy and stuff is pretty strongly inspired from that particular guy and he indeed in actual battle he you know defended the bridge against a uh, uh, hundred or more opponents by himself you know uh, because uh, these guys could only come one by one. Mm-hmm. And so he actually blocked the bridge while uh, the army he was fighting for was uh, retreating to a more favorable position. So it's it's only one of the many uh, you know things he did that earned him respect. He was uh, called the knight without fear and without reproach, without you know uh, like couldn't you know how to say blame him for anything. And he was you know I don't know always defending the the orphans and widows and protecting the weak against uh, the wicked you know that kind of stuff. So, you know, in many ways, Azan is uh, inspired by their character, I think. Uh, the, the, you know, uh, archetype of the honorable knight will not strike down a foe that's uh, uh, weaponless, that kind of stuff. It's, uh, it's from that. <clears throat> I, I've said it before on the show, but, you know, it's one of my favorite character types just in every fantasy series I come across. It just I don't know what it is. I somehow gravitate towards those very staunch, you know, Paragon. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, Cyan from Final Fantasy VI as well, one of my favorite characters. Well, type. I, I think uh, I think Azan is pretty pretty cool, you know. Like I'm not necessarily attracted to the you know uh, the ideal, you know, the paladin, you know, knight, holy knight who will always fight for good against evil. But I think Azan is pretty cool, you know. Uh, he's a pretty cool take on that. There's uh, there's a there's a way to do it right, and I think Azan definitely falls into that where it's like yeah. You know, you can take him seriously, but sometimes he is a bit much, you know, oh, yeah. where it's yeah. funny. And especially, it's... like, when he, I mean, later on in the series when he has to, like, you know, bread flies out of a bar fight. And he's living <laughs> on the street, and he, like, grabs it, and, you know, basically, he feels ashamed, but comes up with some rationale that God has given him the bread, so it's okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Doing the super strict attitude it only works if there's a hint of humor or a hint of lightness to it as well kind of yeah. emphasizing how kind of ridiculous the worldview is that that's that's what's funny and interesting about this kind of character. I think he's most intimidating other than you know this scene where it becomes clear that he is a you know more than a match for guts in this state that you know <laughs> is when he fights the pirates the first time and he's almost like a monster you know for yeah. justice he's just he's Relentless. like a yeah, he just comes out and he's in his full armor and he just he's like some sort of machine just of retribution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because they were enslaving children and also because they disturb his sleep, you know. <laughs> yeah. Not not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> um 
he, when, after Guts kind of, you know, reminds him of the Bridge Knight story, Ozan makes a comment that, you know, it says a little bit about his character that he says he now, he now has cause to serve the religion, which implies that, you know, for a time he wasn't devoted to the Holy Iron Chain Knights and, or sorry, to the Holy See. And that something must have changed in his life or maybe he just found a calling within the church and now he's, you know, more of a, uh, not a traveling, not a monk, but, or a priest, but at least he, he allies his power with the church for whatever reason. Well, he's reason. definitely Wh- quite a devotee because of, uh, you can tell from his nose. I presume that isn't natural, but it's from the whole uh, pounding your head into the floor like Mosgus does. Well, I'm not sure it's necessarily related. I think that might just be, like, his nose? in his case, uh, yeah, yeah, character traits. Okay. But I actually think we get uh, an insight on why he joined religion at the end of uh, this arc. When he comments on, you know, when he sees that, you know, people locked, lo- are locking out, you know, uh, yeah. like, you know, the, like the knights are, are locking out the innocents while the <clears throat> giant specters are coming to divorce them. And he comments that, you know, it's something that he's seen before, you know, that kind of, yeah. uh, you know, behavior. And I think, I think it's implied that uh, it's why he joined religion because of this kind of restlessness, you know, in battle. That made him turn towards, you know, the ideal of a, a better, you know, higher spirit. <clears throat> I can see that. Yeah, there's a, there's a little bit there. It's like, a, I know what you're t- referring to. It's when the gates are closing yeah. uh, at Albion. And, you know, and he's, he says it's, it's happening again. Yeah, and he's, he's, he's clearly very, like, he's really offended by, by it. Yeah. So, uh, even angered. And, and I, think it's a, I think it's a reference to, yeah, yeah to that. <clears throat> It's too bad that we never see these two fight at equal match, but I have a feeling that Azan probably wouldn't last long. Uh, now that Guts is able to just can evade his attacks, even though he's losing <laughs> his vision, he's almost passing out. But he's still able to you know, evade all of his attacks. He has to guard one special technique, the Summer Showers Thrust with his Dragon Slate. I like how he has a named attacks. It kind of calls back to like the Adon era when he had these you know super dramatic attacks that he names techniques. Yeah. As it, uh, Guts guards it with the Dragon Slayer, and I, I like how it shows like you know seven different impacts uh, on, his, on his on his sword at the same time. Super hyper realistic or hyper surreal uh, depiction of, of the attack there. And uh, Zond comments that you know he joined the battle because seeing Guts use his sword you know invigorated him, but he has not used his sword yet in battle, so he's he's a little disappointed. But Gus has other plans, you know, he needs to end the fight soon because he's fatigued, so he, you know, I like how he does this, you know, he waits for Azan to strike and uh, bounces first off of a quarterstaff and then off of Azan himself to get <laughs> leverage up to Farnese on the hill. And uh, in doing so, he also has to take out a few more guards, takes one more swing with the, and Farnese is just, it's just him and her now, but... A errant branch happens to hit the arrow in his leg at the right time, and his eyes fade. The way he's the way Sobrakoa achieves this, uh, you know, Mira says a little bit more about it uh, about the techniques, the kind of techniques that Sobrakoa uses uh, in Volume Twenty Two. You know how he had to duel against suitors for Farnese. He had to make each duel end in a draw, so he didn't kill them, of course, and so that they don't catch on that they're being played by him. You know, very you know. Lots of uh, specific, exp- uh, what's the word? Uh, exacting Tri- techniques. Yeah. 
He basically tricks, yeah. has to be in such control of the fight, you know, for that. I mean, he has to be so much better than if he just had to beat them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So him finding a weakness like this, him pinpointing it and executing it without taking any credit or Farnese takes all the credit for this takedown. Of course, I, I doubt she even knows what happened. You know, there's no way she knows what happened. She just thinks. And I mean, I think the the sword going into his uh, into his shoulder is just a side effect. I doubt he could have planned <laughs> for yeah. that. Yeah. That was just luck. Do you think Gus would have killed her or just taken her hostage like he does later on in Volume 17? I think he would have taken her hostage. I think that's what. Because if he had killed her, like the other guys would have still wanted to get him. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. the point was to take her as a hostage. And uh, and yeah. And I think Serpico was also, you know, like he had been watching the fight and he acted uh, like he did. But it was a close call because you see, like, he's relieved in the panel after that. So Yeah. 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 Good, good thing that one toss worked, otherwise I'd be fucked. Yeah, pretty much. So immediately after the fight ends, the uh, remaining Holy Iron Chain Knights, a couple of them go crazy and want to you know, beat Guts up, and Azan stops them from doing anything, saying it's shameful for a knight to do these things. And uh, they eventually, you know, he gives them a little speech, talking about the valor of knights, and I like the look on Guts' face at the time. It's like... He's not used to this kind of chivalry, and also the fact that he, he knows he's surrounded by, I don't know, Idiot. inexperienced people. <laughs> uh, and he comments on it as well. Like, What's with these bunch of goody goodies? So, he's I think he's a little he's not used to seeing this kind of army. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm I imagine they come across as different than the mercenary bands that he's. I also think, it, to a degree, yeah. it adds insult to injury <laughs> yeah. that he's been captured by these goofballs. At Absolutely. least in his estimation, like he can't take these people seriously. I also like, you know, Azan's how to say he's thinking there when he says that he, you know, pretty much Gus just defending himself against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is not something like you know these guys from their position they are just you know arrogantly you know thinking he's the enemy and everything. But Azan, you know, doesn't lose you know uh, sight of the fact that he, Gus actually just defending himself. Yeah. yeah. There were, it also shows that Azan, you know, not only he has an honor code, but it's like, he's also a professional and he understands that too. So it's, it's, it shows a couple of different things about his character, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Farnese is still trembling from the, the attacks that she made, blood on her sword. And Azan probably quite rightly noted, this is probably the first time she's drawn blood, but she gives him a look that... You can see she's trying to mask any fear that she had, any any momentary, actual, genuine emotion she was feeling to make it look like she's in control. Yeah. Which is kind of characteristic of her at this time, is masking her feelings to, uh, to assume authority. <coughs> anyway, they head back to the HQ, which is situated at the base of this giant mountain out in the wastes. Yeah. Uh, Guts has this, um, I forgot the exact word for it. It's when he, uh, his, his hands are shackled. I don't know the, the name for that, but um, either way, one of them, one of the hands doesn't fit. <laughs> and it, re- it reminds me a lot, particularly the, the, the design of it actually reminds me of this. There's a shot in Evil Dead. I think it's Evil Dead 2. Oh, yeah. No, it's Army of Darkness. Army I was going to say the yeah. same thing. That it, remind, it always reminds me of the beginning of uh, Army of Darkness. Yeah. I mean, it's only... It's, it's, sticks out in my mind because his, his hand doesn't fit in there. So it just has the one hand and the, the other hand just kind of sits there. Poor Guts. Uh, walking barefoot across the rocks. And they put a ball and chain on him to slow him down, which is also uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. 
So they bring him in to be interrogated. And I like how he passes these guys in the camp as well. You can see how like rich snob they are with their haircuts all perfectly preened and their little um, almost like court outfits on, like the yeah. ruffled, you know, the shirt thing. I particularly like the guy with the sideburns that's, you know, really, you know, that's holding his fist and, you know, yeah. looking very intently <laughs> yeah. at him. He looks like quite the preppy <laughs> that really yeah. wants to take guts on. Suck up kids, basically. Anyway, we get to see the interior of Farnese's tent, and she tries to assert her authority here that she wants all the guards to leave their posts and leave her and Guts alone, and this guy objects, and she has to... You can can kind of get an insight into the way things work within the Holy Iron Chain, but she's supposed to be the ornamental figure, and clearly Gazan is the more experienced leader that these guys actually take orders from, but in this situation, she's, you know, throwing down her authority gauntlet and making things happen the way she wants to and there's some resistance there before it happens there's definitely sort of a thing where you've got this unfortunate like you know she's like the the officer but she's not actually a soldier absolutely yes for sure she's an ornament yeah and the guys know it like their argument is pretty telling in that regard yeah um, this scene kicks off something that Mira will focus on throughout this arc, and that is uh, religion's place in the world of Berserk, uh, in, in a world where demons are the ones that are actually pulling the chains or the strings behind the scenes. You know, where does something like God fit in? And, and Mira, through, through guts, Mira is taking some stabs at that kind of authoritative um, thinking, I think, but particularly because the whole the, the Falcon of Light, the Order that is behind that religion is, is a hollow one. And I don't know if guts recognizes it to that, to that extent, but he knows that he's encountered supernatural forces in person. Whereas these guys have experienced with that only through scriptures and in readings, you know, he comments at one point, how Farnese takes an answer like a, like someone would learn in a convent, you know, versus he actually does have firsthand experiences with things that are beyond this world and, and gods as he calls them. Anyway, and we also point out, or, you know, Sarnese notes all of his weaponry and his giant sword. And, and again, his war and his conflict must make absolutely no sense to them who don't even acknowledge any, you know, supernatural forces. I mentioned, I, I, I failed to mention this during the fight, but the fact that they become so certain that he's a Falcon of Darkness, at least Farnese does, is indicative of how little they know about this world. If, if the Dragon Slayer, which is impressive makes them confirm that he's the Falcon of Darkness. Clearly, they've had no exposure to any other supernatural forces or even apostles. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, if, if Guts is the one that convinces them that he's some supernatural creature. Yeah, imagine yeah. if they saw Zod, you know. <laughs> yeah, or, 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 or if it's the one that they were seeking. If they well, saw Femto use his powers, it'd be, the, you know. The thing is, if they saw Zod, they wouldn't live very long to have time to reflect <laughs> yeah. about it, you know. That's true. <laughs> so they'd yeah. be dead within a minute. Yeah. It's also nice that uh, they draw some attention to the Behirat here as well. Uh, yeah. And in, it's not it's not done anything, nothing super important happens to it, but I just like how she immediately assumes it's some secret pagan treasure and uh, uses it to kind of extort Guts to, you know, confess the truth, you know, what his true mission is. Which leads to the whole uh, religion thing, which I've already talked about. This is, uh, this whole thing is, they capitalize on this, Mira capitalizes more on this in volume 17 uh, when he's with Farnese, but it's touched on here about how uh, 
Guts asks if he if she has seen a god or met a god, and she says that God doesn't display his miracles on this earth lightly. And Guts just laughs because obviously he's encountered these miracles before. His his view of gods and angels is quite different than someone that comes from a church. Anyway, his mockery of the religion, you know, forces her to not forces her causes her to you know take the interrogation a little more seriously than she probably should. Ends up using the whip on him many times. And he uh, notes how when he looks at her, he just thinks of her as hollow, like the ornament behind her, referring to the Falcon of Light, driving her into a rage. Uh, there's this moment here when he's, his chest is bleeding, you know, on both sides of it. And the top of the page focuses on her whip. And I couldn't tell if she was about to put it down or what. There's, a, there's this momentary hesitation there in that page right before Azan comes in. It startles her, obviously. I didn't quite know what that moment was about. Uh, it, it, preceding that is this very intense look on Farnese's face. I wondered if she had become entranced by him in the, in the bloodshed. If it yeah. was like a, mom, a moment of darkness for her. Yeah, I think she was... You, you skipped a bit fast on uh, when she's whipping him, but uh, she, she does look completely transfixed. Like, you know, it starts with the first hit she, you know, the uh, first time she strikes, and then she goes, you know, more and more. She has this look of frenzy and I think at, at that point she was like you know on the page before there's that panel where you see her face her eyes mm-hmm. and it's almost the same kind of look uh, we see her displaying when she, you know people are burning you know uh, later on so I think at this yeah. point yeah she, she was a bit transfixed by the blood and a bit you know it's some kind of uh, how to say unhealthy you know fascination and when so Azan comes in it's just you know startles her you know out of it I mean, I think it's sadism. It's in, in, in yeah. inducing pain on others, and we see it again through the fires, of course. Yeah. And I also think what's interesting is how Guts sort of, you know, gets to the core of her. I mean, he see, he literally sees right through her and, you know, throws in her face the fact that, you know, she clearly shows no respect to Azan. You know, that she, you know, she pretends to be this proper authority for these knights and everything, but that she, all she cares about is having the power and, you know, she, he just noted, you know, in the sm- short time he's been with the, like, the sort of disrespect she has for someone that he can already tell is a person of substance. Yeah. And that, that sort of uh, sets her off, too, before uh, before she starts getting, uh, obviously, uh, sort of excited from the bloodlust. It's the second torture scene in Berserk where the person being tortured cuts to the heart of the matter. Causing <laughs> yeah. the person to whip them further, and I, I think Puck has a moment where he's like, "Oh, you could have avoided this," you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually would say it's a third time because you know, like in Volume One, oh, he, act- sure. he, act- he actually gets yeah. a guy to <laughs> to torture him some more, so he's was... you know used to that now. Yeah, Puck's reaction—I skipped right over it, but you know, Puck's merely annoyed by this additional bloodshed. He's just going to have to heal that up too. <laughs> like that look on his face. More walk. Yeah. Anyway, Azan breaks in and basically just, you know, breaks up the whole scene. Uh, and uh, I like how Farnese, she knows the jig's up, but she says, well, you're dismissed anyway. You know, she's trying to reassert her authority, obviously when the, the show's already over. Uh, and at the same time, uh, I like how, Azan is taking this, you know, as well as he can. And uh, I can't remember if it's now or later. 
that Guts acknowledges, yeah, it's right here. The, the old man has to put up with this too, is what Guts thinks to himself. Yeah. When Azan's enduring her yelling at him. Anyway, Serpico approaches him, and is, this is the first time that these two have spoken, but it's a, the, converse, the tone of the conversation is similar to many others they have in the future. About how he says to lay off, basically lay off, uh, and trying to tell that, say that with a smile. He's, he makes, you know, like, yeah, this, this casual comment, and Guts is, you know, like, ugh. <laughs> and uh, this scene's really cool. I like this a lot. Serpico checks in on Farnese, and she's trembling, praying, and Notice he notices the the difference, or the impact that guts made on her, and obviously he's wary of it. Uh, you know, similar to many other scenes we see of these two in the future. Anyway, and that's pretty much the volume. They've tucked guts in at night at the cage and a blanket, <laughs> and not much else. And uh, the brand begins bleeding as nightfall begins, and he realizes that things are about to get real. Yeah. Um. I was going to ask you guys, you know, throughout this interrogation scene, once he gets captured, um, what do you think his his mindset was? Was he thinking, you know, that's it for him? Or do you think he still had hope for escape? I, I don't think he was broken or anything yet. I oh, guess I, no. I, I, yeah, I, I, I think I he's at just... Him as, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think he's just, uh, how to say, uh, you know, hanging back, looking at what's going on, what's happening, and just waiting for a chance to, you know, just, you know, free himself and just waiting for a chance, you know, like, he he doesn't seem actually particularly, you know, on edge or anything like that. I think he's mm-hmm. just, you know, yeah, uh, you know, uh, sitting back and waiting to see what, what's going to happen and how he can take advantage of the situation to free himself. It's really among the best situations that could happen because it just gives him time to recuperate and then strike out again. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And, uh, all, all those things are a bit precipitated by the facts uh, the specters arrived, but uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, that's the volume. Uh, we'll be back next time to discuss volume 17, which is one of my favorite volumes, top five probably. And uh, that'll be fun. So oh, yeah. Join us then. That is it for Berserk. Join me, if you will, for Mad Max discussion. Uh, I saw Mad Max late last night, was it? Was it two nights ago? Two nights ago. I thought it was the night before. Yeah, it was two nights ago. Yeah, Friday night. I caught a late showing of it. Um, and it Were you was... able to stay awake? Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that wasn't a problem. So, Azil, uh, I know you haven't seen it yet. Me and Griff have seen it. So, uh, I would like to talk spoiler stuff. You can hang on as long as you'd like, or you can bail out. Up to you. Yeah, I'm just going to, you know, leave you guys to it. Okay. Right. Well, thanks for joining, man. No problem. See ya. See ya. So, I really liked it a yeah. lot. But what I what struck me was, like, I enjoyed the hell out of that. I, I didn't feel the need to evangelize it, which is, like, everyone I know has been doing. Like, oh, you have to go see Mad Max. You fucking <laughs> have to go see experience. Mad Max. <laughs> like, it wasn't, it really didn't, I didn't, I was I was blown away by a lot of the choreography and a lot of the visuals, but, like, none of those added up to like movie of the decade material for me personally. I had a great time. I, I yeah. can't remember the last action movie I saw that was similar in caliber to it, but I don't know. I, I felt a little overhyped going in and that's probably all I was responding to was yeah, I, super I hype. I, you know? I, I was already dreading going in. Not, I mean, I knew I was going to like it and I knew I was going to have a good time, but I was just like, oh man, you know, 
everyone likes this movie it's got you know the the 99 percent on rotten tomatoes yeah. when i went in to see it you know and yeah. even even nightcrawler likes it you know i'm just yeah, like yeah, you know yeah. geez, oh my god how am i gonna you know how are my expectations going to be met it's impossible i'm already bad enough where it's like you know i'm i'm looking for the best movie ever every time i go see a movie so yeah, yeah so i mean i really liked it it was really good i have you know nitpicks and things but yeah it was it was really good but at the same time i was struck it while watching it like how well you know this is sort of an, a movie you know it wasn't yeah yeah <laughs> you know it was normal it was a movie it was a really good movie and it had a lot of spectacular things, but I, there would be moments where I'm thinking, like, you know, this is just a movie. Why is everyone so <laughs> so crazy? Yeah, that, that's, I, I kind of had the same moment as well. Like, yeah, almost every single action sequence had something that made me go, "Holy shit!" But it, I, again, I wasn't like moved by it yeah, necessarily. Exactly. Um, At the same time, it didn't take me to another place, you know, in reality or anything. And that's that's not a knock against the movie. It's yeah. a knock against the super hype machine that's been building around this movie. Like, it's not just people on the forum or anything it's also my entire facebook feed is people that have seen this i feel like the forum is like the only place where people are actually expressing well you know there's some yeah flaws oh oh, wait sorry about that sure cut out for a second yeah so i mean i feel like that's sort of the only place where anyone is yeah even just pointed out well this was something you know i didn't like they weren't bashing the movie they were just pointing out that not everything in it is you know like this perfect religious experience (laughs) Right. If you even if you you can't escape it online either, like my entire Twitter feed is this movie. If you go to Twitter and you click search, like the first five highlighted search suggestions are all Mad Max related. Like the fucking Internet is on fire because of this movie. (laughs) And you know what? I mean, I'm glad about that. I'm not even complaining about that. It just did. You know, I would have rather gone in there thinking, you know, like, oh, man, you know, this movie had a troubled production. It's been, They've been trying to make it for 15 years, you know. Oh, I, mm-hmm. You know, I don't know about this. And then I would have just been like, I probably would have been where all those reviews were. But yeah. because I got that, I got sort of that heads up, then it was like, oh, well, yeah, it was it was really good. I see what everyone's so excited <laughs> about. But it's like, whoa, <laughs> calm down. We're expressing ourselves a little too. Uh... Sure, sure. So, of course, Pitch Perfect 2 is going to beat it oh, by yeah. $20 million at the box office. Actually, I don't even know how Mad Max has been performing. Like, I, based on... I've been reading the estimates, and apparently it's probably going to make something like $45, $50 million, while Pitch Perfect 2 is well what? over the $60 million mark. I felt, I thought it would be like, super, just given the buzz, I figured it'd be huge. Oh, well. That's, I guess it's a rated R movie. That's part well, of it, right? Well, yeah, it's rated R, but at the same time, also for perspective, not counting for inflation and all that. I also read that like something like Beyond Thunderdome, this is already more than that movie made in its entire run. Oh wow! So this is the biggest opening of a George Miller movie, and, and all that stuff. So it's it's I saw it, something. It also, it also costs like something like ten times as much or something like that. Yeah. Well, you know, and also, I mean, just to talk, you know, since we've got more of a free form here to talk about it, what did you think of Tom Hardy's performance as Max? I mean, and you you've seen the Road Warrior, right? So I have never seen any Mad Max anything. What? what? <laughs> so that's that's why this was such an interesting experience for me because I'll tell you the turning point for me was like the reason I probably haven't seen Mad Max is first of all as, as one of the articles I read noted it's not in syndi- it's not syndicated much you don't see it on you ne- you'll never see this on TV. Well, really. actually, Mad Max is on TV. I've seen it quite frequently, which is okay. unfortunate because the Road Warrior is the one that should be on. It's, yeah, I heard that's like basically the Terminator Two of the series. Yes. So 
I the only thing I knew about Mad Max is that it was about a bunch of road chases in the desert with like big cars, and that was like I don't really feel like I need to see that. But when I, when when this movie started, I'm like halfway through, I'm like yeah, lots of road chases with big cars in the desert. Fuck yeah, <laughs> this <laughs> works. Yeah, <laughs> like they should make more movies. Yeah, the Road Warrior is you know. I still think that's another bit of baggage I had going in. It's like, you know, they're saying this is the best movie ever. Let's see if it's even the best Mad Max movie ever, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's sort of the chip on your shoulder. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting how it sort of compares to the changes they made to the main character. And obviously I guess you can't really speak to this. So I'm just sort of talking, uh, some thoughts here, but yeah, I thought Hardy's portrayal was, was a little weird. Some sometimes it was you know spot on and great, and it wasn't just Hardy. It was also I feel like they kind of the way they wrote it too was a little different than the character previously. The previously the character you know he had all the qualities we saw in this movie, except for sort of the 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 kooky like right the part. manic animal yeah the type. manic yeah. you know you know sort of that he didn't have that but he and he also you know minus that and he also had sort of a twinkle in his eye at times. He had sort of a charm, and he could be a scoundrel in a charming way. You know, he could uh, – I mean, it was interesting. You know, he had a lot of different facets to him that sort of didn't come across in this movie. And Hardy also just was doing those weird voices sometimes. Yeah, almost sometimes a little bit of Bane. Yeah, and I'm just thinking, like, can this guy just talk? (laughs) Like, you know, just do – yeah, do an Australian accent and – I thought it, I, I really liked his performance. Uh, yeah. Actually, I mean, like, like there's a lot of delivery of his lines. He's a, very... He was good in that he's almost like, and this is this is sort of a beyond Thunderdome where he became this sort of a force of nature, mm. where you know he, he's just sort of yeah, like you know it says he's he's he's, he's just a survivor. You mm. know, he, he finds a way to survive. That's his instinct. But he always sort of overcomes that to help people. You know, begrudgingly, very gut like a... sometimes in that regard. It's a very it's to me this is a very difficult movie to discuss because so much of what works is visual and it's difficult yeah. to convey that in conversation. So all I can really say is like scenes that stuck out to me is really awesome. Like like uh, the first moment I remember very very vividly where I I could feel myself saying like oh my god this is fucking great is when they ride into that dust storm and yeah. the guy is being sucked into the tornado or whatever it is. It's well, I, visually. I got, I, yeah, it's incredible. But it's like I got that even earlier because yeah. I got that just when they're in the Citadel, which I'm sick of things being called the Citadel, by the way. That name <laughs> should be retired and never used for any place again. Uh, Where, what are, oh, oh, Mass Effect. I think yeah. it's also in um, – It's in Half-Life 2. Yeah, it's Half-Life. In Mass yeah, Effect. Yeah, yeah. It's in it's – in, I hear it in 50 other like random lesser known things. Every there, everywhere has a citadel, and so just that place, you know, with the people, you know, all the people standing using their basically using human beings as engines to lift that mm-hmm. platform up and down, and just you know, just the yeah. scale of everything, and you know, those the the women making the mother's milk, and just all this stuff that's like whoa. <laughs> like whoa, and you know, uh, Immortan Joe himself. Everything was just so weird. That little. That little man, you know, mm-hmm. his son. <laughs> that was—I didn't know if that son. was his, one of his, yeah, one of his sons. And it was just like, you know, ugh. There's this again. It's the George Miller. If you've seen the other movies, it's like, mm. it's basically stuff he was always doing. But now, yeah, he's got two hundred million dollars to just put as much I... <laughs> weird stuff on the screen as you would like. I—I I feel like I, see the last movie I can remember seeing was like, I don't know, fucking Alien. Uh, Whatever it's called, 
the the not alien movie that was an alien movie. Oh, Prometheus. Yeah, I think that was the last movie I saw in theaters. And wow, it's been a long it's been a long time. And like the audiences matter a lot to me now. So I had a very lively audience, and not not to the extent that it, it like ruined the experience of the movie, but some of their reactions were fucking classic. Uh, I've heard that people have like started like clapping and cheering in the middle of this movie. No, like, I didn't. Some of I didn't the action it. sequences. I got a lot of gross out reactions. I had a lot of, that was funny to me was the, the conversation around this movie was, you know, it's a feminist movie. There's lots of uh, power oh, to yeah. females. And yet I, I surveyed the audience knowing that beforehand and 99% males. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, the women were all going to see pitch perfect too. So it's, yeah, yeah. it seems to be with the breakdown. Which is, I guess, so, which is sort of unfortunate, but I mean, at the same time, you can you can put like a feminist plot line in the movie, but that doesn't make it like a a, a movie for women. Yeah, yeah. So I can't. There was there were two moments, two or three moments where I laughed out loud. I, I wish I could remember what they were, but I felt like I was the only one in the audience that was laughing. And like, some of them were super obvious jokes. Like you're supposed to be laughing at this, but I felt like I was the only one that got it a couple times. Yeah. Like visual gags, but uh, anyway, one the one moment that sticks up to me, my audience was uh, when Immortan Joe is holding, is cradling the the body of the the wife that fell over and was run over, and he's screaming, "No!" You know, um, there's a moment of silence immediately after that, and there's a couple near me, a man and a woman, and he told he told her, he whispered to her, "I did not know this was going to be so fucked up. I'm so sorry." <laughs> he's telling her that. I was like, oh, good. And that was before they did the operation on her. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was, that might be like the darkest moment in the movie that they just sort of brush over. <laughs> like it strangely, it strangely didn't didn't bother me that much. I don't. know. It didn't bother I, me, but it was it didn't bother me. But it's like when you think, go back and think about oh, it. It's yeah, because yeah. they handled it in a way that wouldn't bother you. But when you think of what's actually happening there, it's like that's pretty horrible. <laughs> you, you, yeah, they probably yeah. could have paid more attention to that. And it really doesn't pay off because you know they focus on Joe after that. That's actually mm-hmm. one of my my only major critique with it, other than like you know I have issues with how Max was was done versus before. But there, it seemed like that was really going to be his motivation to, like, never stop. Yeah. I thought you know, so, too. Like I, he I, was, I kind of intuited his, that, though. Yeah, exactly. This was his perfect, you know, son that he was looking for, and these guys ruined it, and he was going to, you know, destroy them or die trying now. And, you know, then, the next time change. we see him, yeah, the next time we see him, he's, you know, humming some <laughs> tune, and, like, it's them coming back. They're, they're not even chasing them anymore. And so mm-hmm. I thought that was a little weird because it was like, okay, well that didn't yeah. that ended up not serving any purpose. It's a missed opportunity because yeah. later on you see he gets one wife back for a moment and he holds up his he put, finger as saying puts one. That, he puts that one up, which I, I yeah, liked. Yeah. I thought that was cute. I but thought he, he, I thought he was waiting for him to do it too. Yeah, 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 yeah. When he got the other um, one. I really liked him uh, because he's just so fucking imposing with the the voice yeah. and just how crazy he looks. And he doesn't really, you know, what's interesting about him is he doesn't have many direct speaking lines. He's really just barking orders and that's it, which makes him even more imposing because you don't know the, yeah. like, the state of mind this guy's in, you know. He looks crazy. And he's, how and crazy he, is and he? And he's not, you know, he's crazy, but he's also, he seems pretty practical. Like, you know, he's mm-hmm. trying to get people to do things for him. I like, I mean, he's got one of those weird lines, like, you know. Where he's sounding benevolent, but he's you know clearly an insane dictator. Who's like, don't get addicted to water, my friends. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that was the other trouble I had with the movie, even early on. Like, it must have been the speakers, but I couldn't hear dialogue very well at all. Oh, that's like, at all, at all, at all. And it, I don't know what. It, maybe it was just a bad mixing uh, for on, yeah, on their part. Yeah, I, I, 
I had a fine experience, except for sometimes mm. Tom Hardy was getting into like gibber gibberish territory yeah. when he was talking, which is weird because Max, you know, spoke very very clearly before. Mm. So you know there. Were, there were times where he was, I thought he was spot on and really did a great job, especially sort of, you know, visually conveying the character and other times where it seemed like they were doing something different with him. Like right. he was a little more broken, which is also, it made me question the whole, uh, the idea that what Miller said and also made me think, you know, wow, you really fucked up Mel Gibson. You could have been in this movie. Uh, <laughs> that, you know, I, I wondered about that. I wonder if it would have been a better movie or not. I don't. I don't I, know. I it to me, it would have been a better movie if it was Mel mm. Gibson. Even even like a sp- if okay, if what happened with him in his personal life had never happened, definitely it would have been better. But I would have <laughs> even accepted it, you know, now as yeah. things currently stand, because in a lot of ways, it really makes more sense as Mad Max Four, which it originally was going to be, especially with like the the trauma that he's experiencing, and you know all the people he's you know let die that he's haunted by it's like he didn't really have that before he just had his family and you know he didn't have any of these you know flash you know these dreams or anything that are like sort of haunting him in real time or you know illusions or delusions so that was all new and that would have that seemed to me like growth you know that was like a change in the character Hmm. So, so is this supposed to be set after Thunderdome or before Thunderdome? I mean it's I think it's not supposed to be set anytime because he has his car that uh from Mad Max 2, which he didn't have after that movie anymore. And yeah. and then it gets, you know, he has it, it gets destroyed again. And I figured he was going to get it back and it was going to be like it took place between the first movie and the second movie. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they have that moment, which also bugged me, where it's like the, his car is coming up. And that was good. That was good when he would like see things that were yeah. hit. There That's is mine. Fun. That's mine. Yeah. That was. I really liked that. But then the car's coming up and he's hanging over the side, and I'm thinking, oh yep. yeah, he's gonna get on the hood of the car and get <laughs> it back. And, and then instead, the car just gets blown up. And to me, it was like watching, uh, you know, a favorite character die. I like no. Yeah. <laughs> Why'd they kill the car? <laughs> Actually, f- I I recognize that moment as well. Because they didn't do anything with the car. I'm like, that's his car, right? It's getting fucking yeah. trashed. It's and like, he didn't seem to like, care at that point. Why, why'd they bring his car back? And, you know, for the, you know, it's his signature vehicle. It's like having, here's the Batmobile. And then they just yeah. blow it up immediately. And then it's like, oh, he's going to get it back. No, nah, wait. So I don't know. It was, it just seemed like yeah. it was a little, I guess that was just a little fan service having yeah. the car in there at all. But it, it ended up being the opposite to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I think it also makes service. It, it layers a little bit of suspense because you can kind of read his reaction whenever he, get, he sees his car getting trashed. He's getting a little yeah. antsy about that. That's kind of layered funny stuff. Yeah. And just the fact you see his priorities, which, yeah. again, those weren't his priorities before. Like, he, you know, he liked his possessions and everything. But when he was strapped to, you know, if he was the old mm-hmm. Max, if he was strapped to the front of a car being used as a human blood, don- you know, a moving <laughs> blood donor, he wouldn't have been worried about his car. At that moment, I don't feel like. Yeah. <laughs> so, I really love that scene. The way that action sequence opens up, just like the, you know, in, in typical like almost formulaic action movie style, is you raise the stakes and then you keep raising them. You know, it's th- this the movie st- the action sequence starts with him on the front of the car. You know, it's the it's yeah. the very front of the entire fight. You know, and if, you know how he escapes that and how he gets back in control is yeah awesome to watch yeah it's a really great movie like i kind of said in the thread it kind of trans like all my nitpicks about it you know what it is is a mad max movie it's it transcends that as just what it, you know as a movie itself to watch mm-hmm. 
it's you know there's no i don't care that you know it didn't necessarily live up to some of those expectations to me because i mean it's such a it's a great addition to this franchise i mean it's like it's one of those things if this wasn't a mad max movie you would wish it was you know that they would just yeah. slap the name on it because if you're a fan of that series this is definitely a, a nice jewel to add to uh mm-hmm. to yeah to that crown. To me, there's a lot to admire, even independent of like the. To me, the the main attraction is the visuals and the action, but I mean the the it's a very not a very fleshed out world, but it's fleshed out enough that every little detail they reveal about it is interesting. Yeah. And that you wonder about certain aspects of the world and all the the culture that's there and uh, the different types of warlords there are. Some of them are just super comical. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Those, yeah, those weird warlords. And I mean, again, if you want to sort of see the pre, in a lot of ways, it's almost like a remake of the Road Warrior in some ways. Mm. Um, I would, I would definitely recommend you go back and watch that one just to see sort of what the the previous, like, I mean, or maybe still, I I still would say it's my favorite in the series. But mm. like I said, I almost count this movie as sort of a separate statement by George Miller. You know, so and long after the I fact. think that's fine. I mean, if, yeah. he, if he wants to think of it as non, I don't have a problem with it. Being it's really, it's like this movie is like the Furiosa movie, really, with Mad Max yeah, in totally. it. You know, he's yeah, sort of just, great. it's like, uh, you know, he's, I don't know, think of it like the Little Sisters if I would compare it to Dark Tower. Mm-hmm. Sure. This is, I don't think I've read this anywhere, but one thing I noticed, and, you know, the fact that this is, there's a lot of female empowerment happening in this movie, but like, it's not just like an ornament that they wear, like we're the female power movie. It just kind of happens naturally. And yeah, like, they don't ever bring attention to it directly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a situational thing. Like they're fighting against this super oppressive system. So of course it's about female empowerment because they're just fighting for yeah. their lives. They're fighting for basic freedoms. I mean, and there's well, stuff in there. If you pay attention that you can take is sort of uh being more direct with that message, the the who killed the world line, and the fact yeah, that yeah. the 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 guys' uh, army are called the War Boys, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know that's all they do is destroy shit. Yeah, it's like yeah, that okay, I see. But I liked it even down to the fact that, like you said in the thread, you could argue that the main character actually was Furioso. Yeah, and she doesn't even. Here's the thing: it's a it's a female lead with no cleavage she's wearing like a sports bra the whole time how'd they get that through hollywood no yeah and it was also they hired they still hired one of the most beautiful women in the world (laughs) the player you know and they don't make her look beautiful at all which is like you know fine good you know it's like when you if you dressed up Charlize theron she would have been the best looking of those of the wives you Mm -hmm. know if you put them in an outfit like theirs but yeah i always have to be reminded that she's Stunning because like and the, the interviews and stuff like that. She's like, oh right, when she puts makeup on, she's like some kind of goddess. Yeah, and that she just looks like her her looks in the movie are just. I feel I feel like she was cast for her acting ability and also her ability to give like super intense looks, like because she can contort her face in a way that. Like, I mean, well, I think the closest comparison would you know that's almost too on the nose is uh, Sigourney Weaver in Alien Three. Sure, except yeah, she's yeah. she's actually a lot tougher and more rugged. Like she really gets I, down and dirty. One of my favorite scenes is when when she first sees Max, or rather when Max has the shotgun pointed at her, and uh, you know he's drinking the water, and you know shit's about to go down, and the looks she's giving him in that moment, she's kind of sizing him up, yeah, kind of kind of smirking. They're, they're like, sizing each other up, and they can kind of tell, you know, that they're yeah. the two they're the two dogs in this fight, and everyone else is just sort of on the periphery. Like you know he, 
he tells you know the girl like no you you cut the chain because he doesn't want yeah. her getting anywhere near him <laughs> he doesn't want yeah. Furiosa getting close that's a really cool scene I, mean, yeah. I, lo- I love all their interplay you know my, my one of my other favorite moments is when they're taking out the guys on bikes flying over them you know kind of like shooting out each window one yeah, you know, together. there were so many moments in this movie where it's like it was like a video game, but they were yeah. actually filming it. They're actually jumping over the truck and dropping bombs on it. It's like this yeah. is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, there were actually there were a few moments. And actually, I've seen people criticize some of the visuals sometimes where it's you can tell they use some CG to enhance things. But yeah. to me, it, it didn't bother me because it's all so visually surreal and like hyper yeah. crazy that like it fit right in to me. When things looked a little too, you know, CG, it, 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 yeah. was, it, it was fine, you know. And also, I mean, I've heard that, yeah, they use, they definitely use CG to enhance some things, to cover things up and to, you know, obviously for that tornado. But I thought it was a pretty good marriage of, you know, sort of the old school Mad Max. We're actually going to crash a car into this other car, you know, in this scene. It's not going to be mm-hmm. faked. We're going to do it at speed. <laughs> and, you right. know, the stuntman just has to, you know, survive because he knows how <laughs> and uh it was a good marriage between that and sort of modern movie making i saw a lot of modern techniques i was impressed that it wasn't you know this wasn't like a george lucas situation where you could tell the guy hadn't made a movie in 20 years mm-hmm. this like he you know didn't miss a beat and was incorporating sort of every sort of advance that's come along into this old school kind of you know non-stop action movie did you see any any Happy Feet in Mad Max? Fury no, Road? I did. I did not. I never saw Happy Feet. So, oh, I did. <laughs> okay. I was not. I didn't even see Babe Pig in the City. As some people were saying, like, where the hell did he pull this out of? It's like in the <laughs> last thirty years. It's like he didn't even direct the good Babe movie. <laughs> so <laughs> he had it bottled, waiting to be let. Yeah, loose. he was just waiting to unleash this. But I mean, if you've seen the first three movies, it it makes it makes a lot more sense. If you watch yeah. The Road Warrior, which I highly recommend. You know, that's sort of the quintessential old school version of this movie. And I think oh, I, mean, I, I definitely want to see it. I'm just yeah. trying to figure out when I'll have a chance to again. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else about the movie. Um, soundtrack and audio in general, just fucking visceral. That like the the flamethrower slash guitar solo guy. Yeah, that was out. just insane. I I, re- I saw a review that sort of had just had a picture of that guy and was describing him in the truck and saying. This is the craziest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> like, and this is just a picture of it. Imagine it, you know, moving around in the movie. <laughs> you know, and it's like, and this is just one thing. This isn't even very important. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just there, along with numerous other things like it. And it's like, yeah, it's that kind of movie. My audience really liked that guy. Every time he was on screen, they were they were laughing and, and I was cheering. I was trying to look up if that was Bruce Spence, who was uh, he's a character actor that was in. Mm. Uh, you would you would know him if you saw him. And he was in two of the other Mad Max movies, both times playing a pilot. And I haven't been able to discover it was him yet, but I don't think so because I haven't seen anything on it. Uh, the guy's name is weird. It's like lowercase I, capital O, something, something. Huh. It's, it's, it's really weird. I mean, I, George Miller mentioned him in, a, in an interview that I'd read uh, a couple of days ago. Huh. Anyway, it was really, really damn good. Yeah, uh, I chose this over Avengers two because I've only heard lukewarm things about Avengers, whereas this was all hot. So yeah, like, this well is steaming. I would, yeah. I would definitely. Ah, jeez, I saw Avengers two again. Oh I'm, wow! And yeah, it, you know, it's good. It's really good. Yeah. But I mean, it's good in a very. I mean, I don't want to say conventional way. 
because what's amazing about it is how it manages to take this really humongous, complicated and bloated, you know, convoluted comic book kind of story and make it into a conventional movie when the kind of like the first one, when it should just be a total mess. Mm-hmm. And it does that even better than the first one. Like mm. it, it just, it streamlines it even better. And I liked, I liked Avengers a lot, but I feel like every movie, every other Marvel movie I've seen in the past five or so years has just been basically just like Saturday morning cartoons, high octane powered. Like it's still at that level where it's just barely engaging me beyond the visuals. And I think this one, I think this one will be an exception. I mean, it's, it's like that, but it's like that at a very high level, hmm. you know, and there's just enough sort of interesting characters and pathos and, you know, I mean, it's basically the, what's, I mean, what se- separates it is the Whedon factor, I guess, mm-hmm. is that he does make these characters, you know, personable. He does make the, the interactions work. He knows what's, what will be significant between the characters that, you know, if you don't know them is seemingly innocuous, but is like, oh, well, that's really cool that they're mm-hmm. having this conversation. So, yeah, I, I want to check it out. I just, I, the, the only problem with it is that it's a lateral move. And and mm. I think that's also what's good about it is that, you know, he I think he just wanted to tell this story and not necessarily do the whole, well, we got to fight uh, Thanos now, yeah. which is what everyone's, you know, waiting for. And so on that front, it's a disappointment because it's like, OK, well, this didn't really this didn't really advance things. This is almost like a side story. Mm-hmm. But the, if they're going to franchise literally this out to like fucking 2022 or whatever Marvel's plan was, they got a. Uh, take baby steps you know so. i feel like they got to get some more people now that they've lost whedon who they yeah probably, you know now they've got the guys who did winter soldier are gonna make civil war and then both the avengers movies coming up that's a lot of work and i'm and confused what is civil war is isn't that when the x-men fought the avengers or something <laughs> it's, I'm uh, confused are you oh man <laughs> no I'm, I'm i'm half serious there was a moment where marvel civil war i'm gonna look that up right now okay uh I, the the elevator pitch is that uh and i don't know how similar it's going to be in the movie version basically um government wants to you know sort of regulate you know superheroes and their identities and this splits the superhero community captain yeah. america is yep, 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 against yep. it iron man's for it and they yeah they fight about it Right, and I remember Spider-Man's kind yeah. of in the middle. I remember, I, I remember the X Men taking a pretty strong role in that because they had pre-existing issues with the government regulating them. Yeah, it's kind of like the mutant. You know, that's what uh, when I was talking about talking about it with my wife yesterday, she immediately went, "Oh, you know, like with the X Men," and it's like, "Yeah, kind of like that." Yeah, yeah, that's why I immediately also thought of X Men because it's pretty similar. Oh yeah, I wonder how they're going to do that in one movie. I remember that being like a long story arc thing. I mean, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I feel like, though, that this thing is going to become anemic, if not nothing else, because it's like they're basically having the, the Russos do everything. Like, yeah, they're going to direct all our movies because Winter Soldier was, you know, such a surprise. And it's like, OK, I, didn't, I still hadn't seen that. I've heard it. I've heard it compared to Metal Gear Solid, though. <laughs> it was, you know, it was good. But I mean, you know, it was elevated. It was again, it's kind of that Saturday morning fair, but only done very, very well. But yeah. I wouldn't say it was better than that. And yeah. So I just don't know how they're going to make, you know, basically like, well, okay, guys, we need you to make four movies that are, you know, the best movies ever. (laughs) It's like, well, okay, good luck. Yeah, you're being contracted to do the best movies of all time. So here's your deadline. 
Oh, they're going to be, I guess the Avengers ones are going to be shot completely in IMAX or something, mm. which is just like, okay, the first movie's ever to do this. <laughs> Wait, which is does like, that mean okay, exclusively well, for IMAX? Does that mean no yeah. normal theaters? Well, no, but I mean, they're just going to shoot it. Like, no movie has been shot completely on IMAX cameras, oh, I guess. okay. Or at least mm. no Hollywood, you know, f- movie. I'm sure <laughs> they've done documentaries. For no IMAX. non-National Geographic movies yeah. on the film. <laughs> okay. Uh, I guess that's the show. Yeah, um, that's all. I I'll pro- I would like to go see Mad Max one more time. I feel like that movie benefit. Yeah, I want to. I, I feel like it. I would like it even more if I saw it again because then I wouldn't have any of that hype baggage or anything like that warping yeah. my my perspective going in. And also, there's just so much to look at in all those scenes. Just yeah, like I feel like so you could see the chaos. movie again and see, and you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't have to repeat anything you already saw if you look at the yeah. other side of the screen. <laughs> Yeah, I, just, I feel like there's probably a lot of visual things to appreciate, like props down to that level. Just like, all, I don't know, all the choreography, all the action. I liked it a lot. Good stuff. Yeah, it was it was great. Well, thanks for joining us, guys. That's the show. We'll be back in a couple weeks for Volume 17. There is no Berserk news. If you stick around this long, we probably already know that. But, you know, anyway, we'll be back. <laughs>